Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I am joined by Andrew Davis, Senior Director of Methodology from Capado. Andrew has an extremely interesting background. So he talks us through what life was like before he joined the Salesforce ecosystem, how he approached securing his first role, and what his early Salesforce roles entailed. Andrew shares the reasons he first became interested in DevOps, how he has seen this space grow, and why companies have a strategy even if they may not know it. He explains some of the misconceptions that still exist about DevOps and talks us through the differences between Salesforce DevOps when compared to traditional DevOps. Finally, Andrew shares some tips for DevOps success, talks through some of the challenges that are holding companies back, and explains his views on teams and responsibilities. I really enjoyed speaking with Andrew and listening to the knowledge that he shared, and I recommend following him on LinkedIn as well as his website. And if you're not already aware of Capado's tools and capabilities, then I also suggest checking out capado.com. I really hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do, please do subscribe for future episodes that are coming through. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So a lot of people in the Salesforce world will have uh, seen some of your content or maybe seen you at uh, an event or listened to some of the stuff you've put out before, um, which is obviously DevOps focused and we'll explore a lot more about that space today. But I really like to start with a bit more about you and, and kind of how you've got to this point in your career. So what was your earlier career? What did that look like before Salesforce? And then I guess, how did you find your way into the Salesforce ecosystem? Sure. So I had uh, trained as an engineer in university, but um, I'm kind of a, I refer to myself as an elder millennial. So I'm the very earliest part of the group that could possibly be called millennials. But I was pretty disaffected with the direction society was going in, so was not really had zero interest in following a conventional career path. I was just trying to see what I could do to help prevent humans from destroying themselves. And so I dropped out of ordinary career activities pretty quickly after graduating and became a Buddhist monk and was a monk for about 15 years. When I found my way to these first meditation centers, you know, I fell in love with the practice and the community and offered to help. And they asked me to do two things. One was I ended up teaching meditation and Buddhist teachings for about 10 years or so. But two was they asked me to help with IT technology things. And the point is, if you're in a small nonprofit and you've got some technical background and they have any kind of technical problems whatsoever, you become the person they go to for those problems. So I ended up dealing with a pretty massive range of different technology areas over the 15 years that I was in that organization. And at one point, when I was based in San Diego, where I'm, I've returned to now, I uh, was running a meditation center, was looking for a way to keep track of who was coming to meditation classes. We literally had no idea. You know, you came to a class, you had a great time, we never saw you again. There was just no staying in touch if you didn't come back. So we were using G Suite, Google Apps at the time, and saw some advertisement for some free tool called Salesforce. I'm like, what? what is this? I clicked through a little bit. Free, of course, being the magic word in my small nonprofit world. 
we big fans free. So we got our 10 free nonprofit licenses. Myself and a few people at the meditation center implemented Salesforce for this small meditation center. I had this idea that we could syndicate it across this federation of 500 nonprofits in this organization. I build a managed package and so forth. And I, I never ended up doing that, but um, did end up doing a bunch more IT work. But eventually when I stopped being a monk, I thought, I've been a generalist all these years. The world doesn't seem to be hiring very many generalists. I should probably become a specialist in something. And thought back to my time working on Salesforce. I thought, I like the platform. It's fun to work on. I could see the benefit, especially for nonprofits or smaller technical crews. I'd love to be able to take my skills back to the nonprofit world at some point, but I knew I could get a job in the enterprise world. And so I found my way into being a consultant, Salesforce consultant. And uh, that was how I kicked this off. I mean, that's obviously a big, you were doing IT and like you said, a generalist and you'd done a Salesforce implementation for that not-for-profit. But I mean, that's obviously a big career move, right? <laughs> a big career switch. I don't think I've seen um, a career switch as kind of different in the, the podcast that we've done so far. So how easy was that to get into consulting with that experience you had, which like you said, was quite broad, some Salesforce, but not a specialist at that point? Yeah. You know, these stories, they all fall nicely into place when you describe them in retrospect. Um, and it doesn't necessarily fully capture all of the angst and false starts along the way. But um, I, I suppose I got I got good advice from a friend of the family in terms of job hunting and how to approach, you know, being systematic at looking at your current qualifications versus what they were looking for in the job applications. And I, I did recognize that having one implementation behind me was not much of a foundation. And so I was looking for ways I could bootstrap my qualifications. And so I looked pretty quickly at Salesforce certifications. And so I went and once I decided, I decided like in May of 2014 to focus on Salesforce. And then I just sat down and started getting certifications. So I got four certifications in the first month of just sort of sitting down and studying and get me interviews. And then at some point, I basically finished up my work in where I was living in England, moved to the US and started interviewing full time for a couple of months. And then basically took interviewing as my full time job. And I started interviewing at these companies and I was marginally qualified or unqualified and they would ask me questions I didn't have the answer to. But my attitude, my mantra was I wanted to bounce well and not get dejected after failed interviews. So every interview, there was plenty of questions I didn't get right, but I never got the same question wrong more than once because every time I got a question wrong, I would go and research it and practice and train and so forth. And so eventually... By the time I got around to interviewing at Aperio, I was qualified enough to pass all of their interviews, technical interviews and so forth. They offered me a job. And then you think you're home free once you've got your first job. Um, but of course, then that's when the real struggle begins. <laughs> you realize, in fact, you were marginally qualified to hold this role. And <laughs> so I worked really long hours, probably 80, 90 hour weeks for the first few months or so as I was sort of building up my own skills and had a very, very, very understanding wife, and then gradually became, you know, qualified and people appreciating my skills. And, and then I'll let you ask me some question to pull out the DevOps part of the story. 
Well, yeah, but I guess I'm interested in even before DevOps, like at that point you joined a period, what were you? Like, what was your title, but what were you put on projects to do? I was a coder. I was a developer. I'd done some software development over the years, sort of off and on in my life as a generalist. I really, really liked coding, just the concentration, just getting in the zone and absorbing into this world of code. And yeah, I knew I wanted to be a coder. And so they gave me a job as a Salesforce developer. And they didn't have many onshore developer roles, but they had mostly you know, the more senior technical roles like tech lead and so forth. So I was a hands-on developer onshore on a Salesforce project uh, to begin with. Yeah, nice. And obviously you became passionate about DevOps and you hadn't had that kind of exposure coming in from a like a broader engineering role per se to the Salesforce world. And because I guess a lot of people that now are coming into the Salesforce ecosystem as engineers have um, had some frustrations with the Salesforce platform from a delivery perspective and, you know, the the tools and, and, and things like that up until recently where you know, the Capados of this world have come in and helped with that. But you didn't have that history. So what was it about DevOps that interested you to be able to do things better? I had a bit of history. I had a bit of background using version control and so forth. And so when I got this job, I was actually assigned to AOL. And my first response was, they still exist? And in fact, they do. To this day, they still exist as a oath, renamed as oath. But um, they're actually a really, really good engineering team. Very loyal employees have been there for 20 plus years in many cases. So it was a fantastic place to land and a fantastic place to learn, even though it sounds quite obscure. But Because I was the junior developer on the team, I was the one that they asked to do the releases because nobody else wanted to do the releases. I would spend four and a half days a week doing actual coding, and and then I would spend half day a week battling through trying to get a Salesforce deployment across, you know, from development to a QA, to a UAT, to a production environment, and just, you know, walls of deployment errors and just sort of, I felt like it was a percussion drills drilling through concrete wall where you just sort of break through one layer of deployment errors after another. And it's really a stamina game that you just need, you know, to debug one deployment error after another. So pretty quickly on, I thought, this sucks. There's got to be a better way to do this. The other thing that was going on at that time is that there was zero version control in this project. So I would make some changes in the code base and I'd come back a week or two later and, you know, we're all in the same developer org. And I look at the code and I'm like, that's not the way I left it. But I wasn't sure if I'd just forgotten if I'd changed it or if somebody else came in and why is it different? And so this this incredible confusion about who's making changes, why are they making changes, what's each line of code here doing? You know, when you deal with code files, every single line has a history to it. Every single line has a story about why it's there, what it does. And so I thought this is pretty miserable. Like we're just operating in the dark. There's no, if you've got version control, you have no history of why your stuff is the way it is. And so this is where that background comes in. We'd done a lot of web development at the Buddhist organization that I was with. And we at least had a very simple CI pipeline, right? We were using version control and we'd automate the deployments of um, web applications. And so I pretty quickly started figuring out how do you track Salesforce work and version control and how do you make best use of developer tools. At the time, we were on the Salesforce IDE, the Eclipse-based IDE. And and so that set off this big quest to learn who within a period this 1,200-person consulting company, knew anything about this. And it turns out not that many people. And I guess just fast-forwarding a little bit further, I, I got promoted to be a manager of tech leads 
my first manager at the time, David Meyer, had, uh, thank you, David, he'd asked me to help implement CI for the masses, continuous integration for the masses. Like, how do we make this easy? Discussing with the other managers of tech leads, every single one of them at that time, it's 2015 or so, said, this is our number one pain point, the Salesforce development lifecycle. We've got to do something about this. So kind of set me off on a mission. Yeah, wow. Well, so uh, obviously now it's uh, a big thing, right? DevOps in the Salesforce world is spoken about broadly, uh, regularly. It's kind of everywhere and it's a hot topic. But do you feel that there are still some misconceptions about what DevOps is? And I guess even uh, what your role and what you do is in terms of Capado and the tools and just the broader ecosystem? Yeah, I think it's probably mostly misconceptions. I think there's, um, well, there, there's a bit of a parallel between, for example, my personal learning journey and anyone's personal learning journey trying to wrap their head around a new topic, be it Salesforce or DevOps, versus how an entire market, you know, if you average it out, seems to be going through a learning journey. As you describe, it's actually encouraging for me to hear you say that DevOps is sort of everywhere and broadly spoken about in the Salesforce world. It was only this last fall that um, you know Dreamforce keynotes mentioned even the word DevOps, right? So it's sort of gotten into the lingo, into the everyday conversation. But where I was in my learning of DevOps, I feel like where we are collectively on average in the Salesforce world on DevOps is probably about where I was in 2014, 2015, when I was just getting started. So it's something about version control, and there should be a way to automate deployments, and maybe we can even automate tests. And that's fantastic, and that's really where it needs to start, you know, version control and automating deployments and automating tests. Those are the tactical mechanics that sort of define the basic things you need to do. Having version control is basically having a memory. It's like knowing what happened in the past and being able to track your work intentionally. And that is, a if you think about a human being walking around the world, memory is one of the very first qualifications you need to not live in danger and misery. The second qualification is the ability to move, and that aligns with this you know, automating deployments. And the third qualification is the ability to move without hurting yourself. And if you can see, move, and do so without hurting yourself, you're off to a good start. Like this is definitely crawl, walk, run territory. And so that's automated version control, automating deployments, automated testing. Now, the reality is that DevOps is this phenomenal world that is now basically bringing together some of the best thinkers, not only the best thinkers in the IT world, but the best thinkers in organizational management and even in psychology. So if you look at IT revolution, it's a company led by Gene Kim, the conferences that they organize, the books they publish, the journal articles they put out, it is the highest quality thinking in, well, I'm biased and have a limited perspective, obviously, but in my view, it is the highest quality thinking content coming out in the enterprise IT space and some of the best thinking in the business world, because it really is speaking to a lot of things. One is the importance of learning feedback loops, The uh, what's called the three ways of DevOps. The three ways of DevOps are flow. And when you're talking about automating deployments and just getting things out to production quickly, you're talking about flow. And that's this sort of left to right movement from development to production. But that's only the first of these three ways of DevOps. The second is feedback, which means knowing what has happened in production and knowing what's happening. Feedback can include feedback from tests, but most importantly, it's are people using your application? What errors are they encountering? Those kinds of things. 
And then the third way of DevOps is continuous learning and improvement. So if you've got flow and you've got feedback, then you can be learning and iterating. Arguably one of the best examples of a group in the business world that does think in terms of flow and feedback and continuous learning is marketing, the marketing department, where basically it's so hyper-competitive that you have to be tracking what's working and you have to be seeing what people are clicking and you have to be learning and you have to be changing. And the world of IT is moving into this space where we've gained a level of maturity where we need to start looking at what people are actually doing in the apps and tuning them continuously. It's interesting, obviously, that your observation is that we're just getting started in the Salesforce world in terms of DevOps. And like when I say it's broadly spoken about, I, I think it is. I think there's, I, I still don't think there's enough people that, you know, are pursuing necessarily a career as a specialist in this space. And, and kind of like when we get a role that's a, a Salesforce DevOps engineer, it's, it's an absolute nightmare to find people that have that capability. But yeah, so obviously there's still a way to go. But is there any difference between like uh, DevOps in the SaaS world in comparison to the traditional IT world? There absolutely is a big difference between DevOps in the SaaS world and DevOps in the traditional IT world. And that difference causes a significant amount of confusion and frustration in terms of the expectations of a DevOps specialist, like your average DevOps specialist with the average set of skills that that would entail versus your expectations of a Salesforce development team. I'll just speak about a couple of the big differences because this is actually a topic I talk about and think about a bunch, but the word DevOps, right? Development and operations. It's the combination of, it's like, hey, can we figure out what systems and approaches and processes will work well for our software developers and will also work well for the operations professionals who are maintaining production infrastructure? So if you're building custom stuff, you've got a ton of operational experts who have to keep that stuff running. You have database admins, you have sysadmins, you have network admins, you have security operations professionals and so forth. And that is a massive subspecialization. And so the techniques that are common in the DevOps world are things like containerization, where you build an app inside a Docker container in your development environment, and then you move it to production and it runs in the same Docker container and it runs the same in production environment as it did in development. So that's a way of you know, unifying the needs and concerns of developers and, and operations folks. And so if you're a DevOps professional and you've spent a lot of time figuring out how to containerize things in Docker containers, and the word that everybody likes, I think they just like the way it sounds, is Kubernetes as a way to get a lot of these Docker containers working well together. None of those skills are in any way relevant in the Salesforce world because you're not building any kind of operational infrastructure. Salesforce is doing all that. And so when you move to SaaS, you have close to zero operational responsibility. There's no network admins, there's no database admins, there's no sysadmins. There's basically Salesforce, you're paying them to take care of all that stuff for you. Salesforce employees are doing that stuff. Salesforce is hiring lots of traditional DevOps engineers, but if you're building way up high on top of that software as a service stack, you have to rethink it very deeply. And so that's why there really needs to be this cross-pollination of the ideas between them. So Whereas the specific tactical skills in DevOps are generally don't transfer, the principles of DevOps do transfer. And the principles of DevOps include things like these three ways that I mentioned, flow, feedback, and continuous learning improvement. And nowadays, fortunately, this is making it into the popular vernacular, popular discussion, what are known as the 
DORA metrics, D-O-R-A metrics. There's four key metrics that are said to be a good proxy or good key metrics to focus on the lead time, how long it takes to get a change from development to production, the deployment frequency, how many times per day, per week, per month you can deploy, change failure rate, how often do you break things when you deploy things to production, and then uh, recovery time, time to recover. How quickly can you restore if there's a problem? So those kinds of principles and general measurements definitely do transfer and translate over into the Salesforce world, but the techniques you use do have to be adapted significantly. When does it become important to have a strategy? Like, I guess in terms of team size, company size, at what point would you say a company is falling behind if they're not addressing some sort of DevOps strategy and looking at how they can be doing things better? Um, I'm fishing for the right quote here. I'm not finding it in my mind. But basically, whether you know what your strategy is or don't know what it is, there is an implicit strategy that you're taking already to DevOps. And DevOps has become this catch-all term that really relates to everything in the development lifecycle. I often distinguish between these two things. What are you building and how are you building it? And traditionally, almost all of the attention in the Salesforce world has gone into what are you building? What is the app you're building, including what are you building it on? You know, you're building a flow, you're building a class, you're building a lightning web component. That's all in this way, framing it part of the what. The how is what tools are you using? What process are you using? How are you communicating about it? What checks do you have in place? And the how is what nowadays we kind of refer to as DevOps. It's all of that process-related stuff. So whether you like a technical manager or technical leader, if you're thinking about DevOps or not, your team is already doing this kind of stuff. And there's some default that's currently happening. The real essence of DevOps, what I mentioned before, this third way, continuous learning and improvement. And the idea of looking at your process continuously the same way that every sprint or every you know work period you're identifying what's the new thing you need to build for the business you should also be looking at what kinds of process changes could we put in place to make this whole thing work better and in a sense whether you call it devops or don't call it devops or whatever it's really this attention to being honest about what's your process what's working well, what's not working well. The courage of every member on the team to speak up, but not in a whiny way, but in a um, constructive way to speak up about how they can improve things, about what's working well, what's not working well. So when I've been on Scrum teams doing you know traditional Scrum kind of development, often the retrospective aspect of it and the learning aspect of it is, is under-emphasized. And the, we focus very much on what we're going to create, but we don't focus on being creative creative about the how. How can we be creative about improving our process? So if someone is listening to this thinking right now, I need to think more about that how and, and start putting some structure and um, I guess steps in place to, I guess you can never ensure success, but get as close to ensuring success as possible. What would, and this is quite a big question, but what would you say are the steps to success? Start learning and start talking about it and sharing you know, learning resources with other people on your team and kind of socializing it because learning is a gradual process and it requires motivation. But as a company, we've tried to put out a lot of learning material, a lot of webinars. You might find both those webinars and we have a Capato Academy and so forth. You might find a lot of that material useful to begin to get up to speed, but also you might find these aha moments, these sort of 
bursts of inspiration. Oh, we could do this very differently. Oh, I never realized this. I didn't realize that was why people say version control is so important. And you begin to realize that there's this whole hidden world within your process of possible performance improvements that you could be making. And it's actually quite fun. I mean, it's, it's once you get the bug or the taste of process improvement, it's quite fun because you're basically removing more and more of the burden of the development process and freeing up more and more space for the creative part, which was really my original motivation, which is how can I do less of this miserable work that we call deployments and how can I do more of this creative work? And whether you're doing the creative work of development yourself or facilitating that for other people in the team, that's the most valuable part of the process. And I think there's a lot of efficiency we can capture from existing teams just by getting better processes in place. It's interesting because I spoke to a candidate actually recently and they told me about what they'd been doing in their previous company and they'd gone and invested time and effort in getting some tooling and setting up version control and they've moved on and they'd heard from their previous employee or their team members that someone else has come in and they've moved back to just purely using chain sets. Is that, in your opinion, when things like that happen and when you see companies struggling with this, is it just a comfort thing? If people are uncomfortable moving to these new ways of working or better ways of working, is it purely just because you know they've not invested that time or is it a skills thing? Is it difficult to get your head around some of these tools and, and, and ways that people are now looking to work? That's a great question. We often think about skills and talent as being something totally separate from tools and so forth. But really, they're, they're very interrelated. You know, our skills are specific to the tools that we know how to use, and the tools are specific to certain skills and assumptions about how to use them. So I spend a lot of time these days thinking about cybernetics, which is this discipline of looking at the commonalities between living beings and the way our minds work and machines and the way machines work and realizing that they're all interrelated. You can't consider one independent of the other. And so, yes, it's a skills gap. If somebody finds it more frustrating and confusing and difficult to use version control than to just suffer through, you know, they prefer the devil you know, as they say, of doing change sets. And it may be inefficient, it may be error prone, but at least you kind of understand it. And there's not that many moving parts. So I'd say that's one of those big areas where DevOps for SaaS, DevOps for Salesforce is so radically different from DevOps for other platforms. Most DevOps tools, discussion, so forth, is designed to help ease the work of people who are infrastructure specialists like AWS, Google Cloud experts, or professional coders, people who are Java, JavaScript, Python experts. And so those tools and those processes like using Git and command lines and so forth, they're tuned for the expectations of people who are comfortable with code, people who are comfortable with you know, command lines, people who are comfortable with living in that and working in that environment. And that is, it's like an impedance mismatch to people who are SaaS developers, where you don't want a black screen, right? It's a white screen, <laughs> you know? And you don't want a lot of text, you want pictures, right? And in a sense, Salesforce can be just as complicated as a, a page full of code. You know, if you look at all the different moving parts in a highly developed Salesforce org, it's super, super complicated, but um, it's intimidating. So that's one thing I'd say Copado, that's one of our main reasons for existence is to provide a less scary user interface. And if you haven't checked it out, Copado Essentials is a free way to start in that area. It's basically, it's like change sets, simple, but you can track things in version control and you never have to hit the command line 
and you never have to look at a screen full of scripts and so forth. And so it helps to bridge that gap. When you spoke about traditional DevOps and the teams and the volume of headcount that you potentially need for all of those different responsibilities, and then if you look at the Salesforce world where a lot of that work is done by Salesforce, as you mentioned, I think it's also important to say it's not just a case of buying a tool though, right, and plugging it in and off it goes on its own. It's not um, like there's this misconception by a lot of companies that you buy Salesforce and it looks after itself so you don't need an admin. And that's kind of a shock to a lot of companies when they've now bought the licenses and they're all right, how do we do this? And oh, you need need someone to do that for you. So I guess that's the same in this space in that, you know, you buy something like Capado and, and you need someone on the inside that knows how to use it and to get the benefit from the tools. So how do you advise people structure their teams? And although it's not necessarily as big a team as a traditional IT DevOps unit, um, what does a DevOps team look like in the Salesforce space? So I would make a shout out to, there's a book and a website called Team Topologies, and it's um, a really powerful way of thinking about how to structure your teams and how to structure your organization and how you need to be thinking about your team structure in line with your business needs. And definitely check out that book and website, Team Topologies, because there's a lot of rich information in there that will go much deeper than I can. The one thing is that you don't really want a DevOps team as such. You want the entire team to be following DevOps practices in the sense that you want to make sure that everybody who's making changes to your Salesforce org, for example, is doing it in a way that those changes are tracked and are readily being synchronized across all of the different environments. And the big issue that happens in Salesforce is environments getting out of sync quite quickly. And so you want to make sure that you've absolutely right, just like Salesforce, a complex product requires trained people to use it. Copado is a relatively complex DevOps tool. Copado Essentials is a much, much simpler one, but definitely is some training required, partly because there's an interdependence between your activities and skills as a Salesforce developer and these tools that you would use to help you in your job. And so if you're not very confident in your Salesforce development skills, then of course you'll fumble with the tools as well. So you may end up needing a dedicated person to be a release manager or a dedicated person, yeah, a dedicated person, say, to be a release manager, or you call them whatever you want, call them a DevOps specialist or something fancier like that. But their job should be to enable everybody else on the team to do the work themselves. A massive common anti-pattern is nobody on the team is tracking their own work in version control. They just track it in a spreadsheet or they tell this release manager what they did and that person goes and tracks the work in version control for them. I actually did that job for a while because I couldn't convince people to learn how to use Git. But it's massively inefficient, right? So you find a user interface to version control that, that everybody can use and understands. And once you've got your stuff into version control, a lot of the rest of the process can be readily automated. And so this release manager, DevOps specialist on the team should be a facilitator of everybody else's workflow. They should not be... The release manager job, I often say, is the worst job in the Salesforce platform because you're basically cleaning up everybody else's mess but typically, an actual DevOps specialist is the best job. It's the highest job in a team because it's somebody who's got development skill, who understands the whole end-to-end -end process, who understands workflow, who's good at change management. And so there's room for you to grow in your career. If you're currently 
focused on the grunt work of doing releases, tap into DevOps because this massively inspiring set of knowledge that you can use to basically realize the potential that you've got in your job to be a change agent, a change maker in your job, and really be a multiplier of your team's capabilities. And that's the potential of DevOps done well. Just one final point then on the, the release side. Because a lot of people think DevOps development and operations and development sounds scary, right? It sounds technical. And um, is that release manager role only for people that are technical or can an admin kind of perform that role? Someone that's more functional has that configuration kind of view of the platform rather than coding. I would recommend, I've got a shout out in my book, I think, to encouraging admins to learn at least a little bit of coding, even if that's not your preferred experience, to overcome the phobia of it, to overcome the fear of it, I think is important. Release managers are the logistics department for a software development team, meaning they're the people who work in a warehouse. They don't make stuff, they ship stuff. And so a logistics department, they're all involved in packing, shipping, transportation, scheduling. It's that side of the world. So you don't have to be an expert in code, certainly, but it helps if you are comfortable enough to be able to discern, oh, this is an apex test error because of insufficient coverage, or this looks like a missing dependency. You're going to get the deployment errors, which are a lot of the daily work for people who do this job a lot. Um, deployment errors are going to tie into every other part of Salesforce. If you don't know Salesforce well, and I mean both the config and the code, those deployment errors are going to be very confusing for you. And so if you're in the middle of it all, you really kind of need to know what's going on. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much. That's uh, shed a lot of light for me over this space. And uh, I think it will for a lot of our listeners as well. So really, really appreciate your time. If anyone wants to reach out, ask any questions about anything we've discussed today or Copado and the tools that you have, and where's the best place to find you? Yeah, well, you can find Copado, obviously, at copado.com, the website, um, if you want to set up a demo. And there's tons of really good learning resources. And I've done a bunch of webinars with Copado, so you may find some of those. If you want to reach out to me personally, I've got a website, andrewdavis.io. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm not very active there, but i um, happy to field questions and keep the conversation going. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure, Ben. Yeah. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. And thanks again.